Well, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been in in the book of John for a while. This is, uh, I think today is week 41, uh, working through this book, and last, or next week will be the final week in the, the gospel of John. 42 weeks we've, we've been in this, in this book, and while we've been here, we have seen Jesus come, and he has taught. He came, and he lived a totally righteous life, and then he died. He, he died on the cross, and when he died, his disciples were scattered. They, they ran away from him, and then he rose again. And so last week, we saw that he started appearing to some of his followers. He showed up to Mary on Easter morning. Then he showed up to the disciples, or most of them, in a locked room. Then after that, he showed up to the disciples with Thomas there, who had missed the first meeting. And at that meeting with Thomas, Jesus worked to lift his cynicism. He worked to lift his despair and his doubt and replace it all with faith. And now today, we're going to see Jesus continuing on this mission, where for 40 days, he's meeting with people, he's teaching them, he's strengthening them, he's commissioning them for his service. And we're going to see in the passage today where Jesus comes and ties up some loose ends with Peter, so that Peter can be uh, refreshed and recharged and restored to the ministry and sent out on the mission that Jesus has called him to, because Peter's had a rough few days. Uh, He has denied Christ, fallen short of the way that he should have lived, and for him to be restored, he's going to need some serious forgiveness. He's going to need some heart surgery to get okay, and Jesus comes to give that that heart surgery here. Uh, The the story of Peter really had started way back. In in Luke chapter 5, Peter was a fisherman, and Jesus used one of his boats to to go and and pull away from the shore to teach people. So in Luke 5 verse 3, it says, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Jesus gets in the boat, tells them where to throw the net. They throw the net, and when they pull it in, the net starts breaking, and the ship starts sinking because there's so many fish, because it's such a huge catch. And Peter immediately recognizes that Jesus is no ordinary man, so he comes and he bows before him, and he says, get away from me because I am sinful. I'm not worthy to be around you. And Jesus says, from here on out, you're going to be catching men. You're going to have a new vocation. You're not going to be a fisherman anymore. You're going to fish for people. And so Peter leaves his nets, and he starts following Jesus. And then we get to know Peter a little bit. As we go through the Gospels, we see him as a guy who is passionate, and he's impulsive. He's the guy who says the first thing that comes to mind. Most of the time, that's a bad thing. But there are also times where it's a good thing. Peter's the first one to say of Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the first one to recognize who Jesus is and just blurt it right out. So, so he's a guy who says what's on his mind. He, he's a guy who, in a lot of ways, is an achiever, and he really thought pretty highly of himself. Now, this can happen. It can happen with spiritual overachievers, where we start to look at ourselves and we think, I am a spiritual overachiever. We start to look down at other people, and we think that we're a big deal. In fact, right before Jesus was going to be arrested, he was warning these followers of his that they were all going to betray him. 
They were going to run away from him. They were going to scatter. They weren't going to be faithful. But this is how, how Peter handled it. In Mark 14, verse 26, it says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So Jesus comes and says, you know how like the abiding and living word of God says they're going to strike the shepherd and everybody's going to be scattered? That's about to happen because everything that God says will happen. And Peter says, nope, not me. I'm staying faithful. And even if these other guys deny you, he looks around the table at the other apostles, the other followers of Christ. He says, even if these guys take off, I'm not going to. I'm sticking with you. No, no way. And at first, it looks like Peter's true to his word because when Jesus is arrested, remember, there are hundreds of soldiers that come up armed to arrest Jesus, and Peter, totally true to form, busts out his sword. He's going to fight all these guys. And he, he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, and, and he's the guy who looks like he's going to be faithful to Christ. But we know how the story goes from there. Peter's spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. And so in John chapter 18, verse 17, Jesus is being tried. He's about to go to the cross. Peter doesn't want to go to a cross. And so he's standing outside, just kind of watching the whole thing from a distance. And so it says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So here he is standing by this charcoal fire, and he is denying Jesus to a servant girl. He he doesn't want to be tied up with, with this Jesus who's going to the cross, and so he denies him just like the scripture said he would, just like Jesus said he would. He abandons Jesus. And so Jesus is left alone to pay for the sins of the world, just like only he could do. The rooster crows, and then scripture says that Peter went out from there and he wept because he was full of sorrow and full of regret. So I don't know where it went after the cross, but but you can imagine what's going through Peter's mind now that he's been meeting with Jesus over and over again. I mean, he's got to be thinking, I wish I could go back. I wish I could relive that time around that charcoal fire and be faithful this time. I wish I could go way back to when we first pulled those fish in. And and over the last three years, I wish I hadn't opposed Jesus and said dumb things. I wish I hadn't put my foot in my mouth so many times. I wish I had recognized that this was the one who would come and conquer death. He wants to do this whole thing over. Peter would die for a do-over at this point. And Jesus comes to provide that opportunity. So now he's restored Thomas. He's restored the faith of his other disciples. And now he's got to tie up loose ends with, with Peter. And this is good for us because we're an awful lot like Peter, where we are super zealous sometimes. At times, we're super faithful. We make the really big commitments. Jesus, this time I'm following you in every way. I will never deny you. I will never back down on my faith. But then the next moment, we stumble and we fall. And just like Peter needed some forgiveness and restoration to get him recommissioned back into the ministry of Jesus, we do too. So we'll read through and see how Jesus did all this. John 21, verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. So here he is by that same sea where they pulled in that miraculous catch of fish. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, 
and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So the story is ending where it began. Peter's out fishing with, his, with the same group of friends. They've worked all night, and they haven't caught a thing. Now, it's interesting that he's gone back to fishing, because remember, he left these nets to follow Jesus. It's not that there was anything wrong with fishing. There was nothing wrong with working a job. But Jesus had a special calling on the life of Peter. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and talking to them, uh, talking to them about how certain ministers should be paid as they minister the gospel, he cites Peter. He says, like, look at Peter. He's able to, to provide for his family and have a wife and have kids because of the faithful giving of God's people, and that's a good thing to do for him. Peter's a guy who was going to be earning his living by catching people and by preaching the word. He wasn't going to be a fisherman anymore. But at this point, he's probably thinking, I blew that. I mean, yeah, I, I'm going to be this guy who's devoted completely with all my minutes and all my hours to Jesus, but how could I ever say I'm going to do that anymore because look what I did around that charcoal fire. So he says, I'm going back to fishing. And he's not denying Jesus here. I mean, he's already met him. He's already faithful to him, but he probably has in his mind, I'm just going to be kind of a JV disciple. I'll be the B team. I'll help in some ways. I'll be faithful. I'll love my wife. I'll work my job. I'll do, do good things as I try to follow Jesus. But I'm never going to be all that he called me to be before because I've blown it too badly. So he goes out and, and he's fishing. He's working all night. He hasn't caught a thing. And this is how it goes from there. Verse 4, it says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They're about 100 yards away from there. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. Which, I mean, how many people do you know can say that? <laughs> I was stripped for work, but um, don't answer that. And so he, he puts on his outer garment, throws himself into the sea, and then verse 8 it says, When the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. So here's Peter, who is out there working, He's got this huge catch of fish, and Jesus had built this team where you have the guys who are really thoughtful and really perceptive, like John, and then you have Peter, who is very active, but not necessarily the think-things-through kind of guy. And so John's the first one to perceive, hey, we just caught a lot of fish, that's the Lord. And Peter, not thinking it through, puts his big bulky robe on, because obviously you don't want to go up to Jesus naked, like you have, you have nightmares about that kind of thing. So he, he puts his robe on, and he jumps into the water. And then he swims 100 yards to shore. So these other disciples have to be in the boat next to him, just, just saying, Peter, we got a boat. And, and here's you in your robe trying to swim 100 yards to get to Jesus right now. There are quicker ways to do this. But Peter was, the, was all passion. He was dumb sometimes, but he was passionate. And honestly, I would take dumb and passionate doers over people who think everything through so much that they never act any day of the week. I'd rather take the guy who doesn't think it through but swims to Jesus than someone who just uses the thoughtfulness to not act. And I think the best would be being really thoughtful and acting, but you got to love Peter here. So, so he jumps in, 
swims to Jesus, and you can see this, this clear comparison between John and Peter. John thinks Peter does, and both of them are really needed on the team. But another comparison that's easy to make here is a comparison between Peter and Judas. Um, really, the, the night that Jesus was betrayed, when, when Judas betrayed him, Peter failed Jesus almost as badly as Judas did. They both denied Christ in some serious ways. Uh, they, they both looked out only for themselves. They weren't thinking about Jesus. They weren't thinking about the disciples. They just wanted to be safe. They, so they, they both ran away as cowards. But there were very different outcomes for these two guys. Judas, once he realized he had betrayed Jesus, he wept. He was sorrowful. He even took those 30 pieces of silver and chucked them back in the temple. He, he, he was trying to make up for his actions. But he never ran back to the community of the disciples and he never took his sin to Jesus. And so because of that, he committed suicide, and he died lost and alone. He refused the only remedy for sin, which was Christ. It's not that Judas's sin was so bad he couldn't be forgiven. It's just that Judas's sin was so bad that he desperately needed a Savior, and he ran away from the Savior and set it toward him. Now, Peter also sinned against Jesus. He denied him. He went out and wept bitterly, but as soon as he realizes that that's Jesus out on the shore, he runs, he swims to him. And that makes all the difference in the world. When we sin, do we run from the Savior? Do we run from the community of his people? Or do we run to the Savior? I mean, Peter is guilty. He's guilty for his betrayal. He's guilty of talking a good game and not following through. I mean, the preseason, it was all talk. And then the season got started and I'll just leave that there. But I mean, that was, uh, this, this was him. This was what Peter was like. It, he was talk and he fell short of God's glory. He failed grievously. And then he sees Jesus on the shore and he doesn't hide his face from him. He swims to him. And for us, when we sin, it's right to feel sorrow. It's right to feel regret. It's right to feel guilty when we're guilty. Like those are the right feelings to have. But the goal is not that we would stay there. The goal is not that we hear the word of God and we just stay guilty. The goal is that we would take our guilt, we would take our sorrow, we would take our sin, and run to Christ with it. And Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He had, he had written the first letter to the, Christian, or the Corinthians, blowing them up, basically saying, guys, you're sinning in this way, and this way, and this way. And they received that, and they were sorrowful. So, so they've felt their sorrow, they've turned to Christ, and he writes the second letter of Corinthians to him, and he says this, he says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. So he wrote this letter, yes, so they would feel, feel guilt and sorrow, but so that they would repent, so that they would turn to the Lord with it. And when they turn to the Lord with it, they're forgiven, they're healed, and they're restored. And so the goal when we confront someone that we see in sin is not just so they feel bad, it's so they go to Jesus. 
The goal of God right now, working on our hearts, convicting us of the sins that are in our lives, is not just so we can go around feeling guilty, it's so we run to Jesus with it. He does expose sin, he does show us who we are, but it's so that he can actually fix who we are, so he can solve that problem. And this is how Jesus does it with Peter. So verse 9, it says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So Jesus has set this stage purposely. And the last time Peter was around a charcoal fire, remember, he was warming himself with the enemies of Jesus and denying Christ. And so now here comes Peter, sopping wet like a wet cat, coming out of the water, big dumb smile on his face, but then when he walks up to Jesus, he sees a charcoal fire again. So this just got awkward, because he knows what Jesus is saying. He knows what Jesus is trying to bring up in his mind. He's trying to bring up that first fire where Peter had denied him. We're supposed to look at these two fires and and see the comparison. The first fire was built by the enemies of Jesus while Jesus was going to trial for his death. The second fire was built by Jesus as the setting for one of the confirmations that he was alive. When Peter was by that first fire, Jesus was on trial and was going to die, but now by the second fire, Jesus is proving that he's conquered death. At the first fire, Jesus was being killed, and at this fire, Jesus is feeding and restoring, and forgiving. At that first fire, Peter was in the process of denying Jesus three times, and at this fire, something happens three times to restore him. But first, verse 10, it says, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. No, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus says, guys, bring your fish. And Peter, who apparently has some biceps, he goes out and tows 153 large fish in a net to land. You know, John's really clear in this gospel that John's really fast. He outran Peter and got to the tomb first but Peter can lift. You can't bench more than Peter. And so he goes and he brings this net in, and in this net there's 153 huge fish. And there are a bunch of different commentaries that are written to try to explain the symbolism of 153 fish. Um, A lot of them are pretty uh, creative. Uh, There's one, for example, that says 153 is the triangular of the number 17, which means 17 plus 16 plus 15 plus 14 all the way down to 1. If you add that all up, that equals 153. And later on, in the book of Acts, when they're there preaching the gospel to all these nations that are there, um, there's 17 nations that are represented there. And so this is symbolic of the fact that they're going to bring the gospel to all nations and be fishers of men from all nations. But here's the thing. When we go to interpret the Bible, we want to make sure that we just give it a plain reading, that we open it up and, and read it for what it says. And if you were to give the Bible to a thousand Christians and only one were to come up with that explanation that's probably not the right one. Um, If you need spooky math to understand what the Bible says, you're not really interpreting it as a book that's from God. Um, So I think what this 153 means is that's a lot of fish. That (laughs) they they pulled him in, and Peter is, is towing that in, and it was probably Peter going, let's see how many fish I can bench. And so he goes... 
and they count, and there were 153 of them. And I think what we're supposed to get out of that is Jesus is really awesome, he's miraculous, and he made it so they caught way more fish than they ever should have. And definitely there is some symbolism because before they had left their nets to be fishers of men and here they are out there fishing again and this time when they're fishing they pull in way more fish than before. The nets aren't breaking. It's different this time around which is probably showing that when they're sent out to be fishers of men it's going to be different this time around. They're not using the same old net of the nation of Israel. Now the church is going all over the place blowing the doors off this thing to bring people from all over the place to come know Jesus. But I think we're supposed to look at that and say wow, Jesus is impressive. So they catch the fish, and Jesus serves them breakfast. Fish for breakfast. These are my people. Like, this is, this is how it should be. Jesus is showing the way it will be in his kingdom when he comes back. Seafood for every meal. And so that's what's happening here. But notice that he's serving. This is the Jesus who served them a couple weeks ago in the upper room by washing their feet, who served them by dying for them on the cross. And here he is after the cross, serving them breakfast. And notice, Jesus had the fish cooked and ready before they brought the fish to him. The fish were already there on the fire in verse 9, and Jesus says, bring me some fish. So he's calling them to give everything that they have to Jesus, but he doesn't need any of it, which is just like him. I mean, he calls us to give him everything that we have, calls us to recognize everything we have is given to us by God to push back darkness around us, to do good with, and he needs absolutely none of it because he's God. So it's breakfast time, they're eating, he's feeding them, he's strengthening them, and now it's time to restore Peter. So verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Simon said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now remember what Peter had just said back in the upper room. Jesus said, you guys are all going to deny me. You're weak. You're not going to stay faithful to me. And Peter looks around the room at the other disciples and he says, no, not me. I love you more than these. I'm faithful to you. I'm strong. There, there's no way I'll deny you tonight. And here comes Jesus looking, looking at Peter right in the eye, and he says, Peter, do you? Do you love me more than these? He's exposing a wound here. And you've got to wonder, why is he doing this? Like, why can't you just move on? Why can't Jesus just put an arm on his shoulder and say, Peter, I know what you did, but I died for you. I forgive you. We're moving on. Why in the world does he have to lay him out like this? Why does he have to fillet Peter like he just did that fish over there for him to to get healed up and to get in good shape? And the answer is because he was going after the disease that was in Peter's heart. He didn't want to just treat the symptoms. A bunch of years ago, in 2007, I had Lyme disease, and I had it for nine months before we knew what it was. Um, There weren't any native cases in Monroe County, so doctors weren't checking for it. But my symptoms were crazy pain in my shoulder, and then a paralyzed right shoulder, and then I had swollen knees on and off for those nine months, and then I had fevers like crazy. And so I went to doctors, and I got painkiller for the, the pain in my shoulder. I got prednisone for the knees. I got ibuprofen for for the fevers. We were treating all the symptoms, but nothing was getting better. We were just masking the real cause. And then finally, I was down by New York City doing a wedding for my cousin. In the middle of the night, my knees were so bad, I had to go to this emergency room in Sleepy Hollow, and the ER doc in the middle of the night drains my knee, and he says, have you been tested for Lyme disease? I said, I don't think so. And sure enough, that's what it was. But then once we knew what it was, the treatment was very different. They put a line in my arm, and there were daily injections of ceftriaxone antibiotic, like hefty stuff to knock that out. And after a month, we had knocked it out, and the symptoms started to fade. 
what Jesus is doing here is not just giving a surface healing. He's not just treating a symptom. He's going after Peter to treat the real disease. I mean, for, for Peter, there were a lot of symptoms of the disease. He postured himself pretty often, often to be the most important disciple. He's the big deal around here. He's the best. He's the strongest. Even when all the other disciples knew now would be a really good time to hold our tongue and not say anything, Peter just got louder and louder. Like when Jesus is telling the disciples, you guys are all going to betray me tonight, the disciples all get quiet except for Peter, who says, nope, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus looks at him and says, will you lay down your life for me? He doesn't know to hold his tongue because he thinks his words are more important sometimes even than Jesus's. He looks at his closest friends, these people that he knows are following Jesus, and in his heart he's thinking, I just love Jesus more than these guys. And Jesus needs to treat that disease of pride that's deep in his heart. Jesus is not interested in just spraying some Febreze on a puddle of vomit. He, he cleans it. Like, he cleans that thing up. And so just like he cleaned those fish, he's about to clean Peter here in this encounter. He needs to, to allow Peter to be broken and humbled fully. He needs that bone to be set so that he can be healed and rebuilt. And by the way, what Jesus does here works. You fast forward a couple decades, and Peter's getting older, he's pastoring, and he writes the letter of 1 Peter in large part to explain how to be a Christian leader. And he says this in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter, who thought, I am the best disciple there is, now says, I'm a fellow elder. Just one guy. Peter, who, who tried to lead and, and move the kingdom forward with his sword, is now saying, don't be domineering. Old, proud Peter has been humbled and broken. He goes on, verse 5, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I think Peter learned this lesson on that beach. He had been that proud guy who, even without realizing it, at times was opposed to Jesus, and so God came and opposed him and broke him and, and allowed for him to not be able to keep his commitments to Jesus even for a few hours so that, humbled, he could be the recipient of the grace of God. And the reason that Peter was filleted here is so that he could be humbled down into the dust and then be used in God's service the way that we're supposed to be used, not as these arrogant, I'm ruling over everybody, I'm better than anybody kind of guys, but as a humble servant who feeds the sheep of God. And honestly, this is a process that Jesus will lead an awful lot of us through. He'll lead us through seasons where we think we're awesome, we think we're big, we think we're a big deal, and when we fail to humble ourselves, he's good enough to humble us for us so that we can really receive his grace and really be used by him in his service. A.W. Tozer said, whom God will use greatly, he will wound deeply. 
And the truth is, we'll probably have some seasons where we feel self-sufficient. We feel like we're up to that task of staying faithful. And he's faithful to us to allow us to go through a season where our pride gets crushed, where we are humbled, so that then at that point we can receive the grace of God. As I've gotten to know a lot of you over the last seven years since we planted Grace Road, it's become apparent that a lot of you are very impressive people. I I mean, for one, I think a lot of you are super smart people. I mean, you're definitely the smartest group of of people that I've ever preached to. Um, I've only preached two places, but like this, it's still, it's um, like you're, (laughs) you're, you're impressive. And I know this from the emails you send, from the, the questions you ask, from the books you're reading, from your thoughtfulness and classes and things. Um, I, I think that you are smart, and it's honestly kind of intimidating. Like, I'm glad that you get grace in a lot of ways, so that I know that if I mess some stuff up, you can just kind of laugh, and uh, he's just crazy. But it's not that big. But it is, there's a certain sense that I know if I don't do my homework, I'm going to hear from you guys that I didn't, because you're smart people. You've achieved something. A lot of you have achieved a lot in a lot of different areas of life. I mean, a bunch of you are Eastman students. And I know, like, if you're a student at Eastman, you're like a spooky genius. Like, you were, like, the best in your town at your instrument. And, and here you are. Some of you have achieved a ton academically. You've achieved a ton in society. You've achieved a lot in your careers. Um, you are achievers. And I know I'm painting in broad strokes here. I know some of you are nudging your wife going, we just binge-watched a whole season of Walking Dead in the last three days. Like, I'm, I'm not talking about all of you, but definitely a lot of you have, have achieved. You've, you've done a lot. You, you've, you are significant in your achievements. And honestly, a lot of you are significant spiritual achievers too. You have been leaders in ministry. Some of you were leaders in youth groups growing up. Many of you are just the anchors of our ministries here, serving week after week. You know your theology, you know your Bibles, you serve, you work, you give, you've been faithful. Morally, you're following Christ. For the most part, you're, you're just living good, clean Christian lives. And that's all good stuff, but I do want to let you know that if that's you, you're at risk. You're at risk of feeling self-sufficient. And looking around at the other people who haven't achieved as much and saying, I serve more, I know more, I give more, I've been more morally faithful, I'm, I work harder. Jesus, I love you more than these. And when we get to that place, God's faithful. He's faithful to allow us to, to break, to allow us to fall, to allow us to be at times exposed so that he can humble us and then really use us. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. He says uh, in Luke 6 verse 20, it says, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
And this is strange. It almost sounds like he's saying that the way that you get to God is by being a poor person. Like that God is there and he's evaluating bank balances. And if you cross a certain threshold, then you are far from God. And if you're under that threshold, then you're close to God. Or if you have a certain amount of sorrow, a certain amount of lack in your life, then you'll be received and used by God, but not if you don't. But that's not what he's saying. It's, it's not that it's a sin to be rich. It's not that being poor makes you a Christian. It's not that it's wrong to have a full pantry or a full belly. Hunger by itself doesn't bring you close to God. But the problem is that when we think we're okay, and riches can do that, fullness can do that, achievement can do that, whatever your wealth is, when we have a certain degree of wealth, we tend to think, I'm all right, I can save myself. We tend to not see how much we really need Jesus. And so what Jesus is doing for Peter here is he's allowing him to see himself so that he knows I'm poor. I'm broke. Morally, I've fallen. I've gone so far from the glory of God. Jesus has set up this charcoal fire so that he can relive those moments, but he's doing it so that he can bring his grace to his life in a real way, in a realer way than he ever has before. So be careful when you think you're pretty good at being a Christian. Be careful when you can look around at other people and say, I'm better at this than they are. Because God will work to, to humble you and bring you to that place where you can see what it really means to be a Christian. So maybe you're in a place where you compromised morally in a way that you never thought you would. And that's not good. God's not the author of sin. God didn't, and in the first instance, design that. But your good church kid image has been shattered. And some people are finding out, and so you can't pretend anymore. And so maybe you're thinking, I'm just B-team now. I'm just going to be JV. Yeah, I'll, I'll still try to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to really be used by him because of how far I fell short. But maybe God's using that right now in his grace to keep you from having anything to depend on but Jesus. Or maybe your failure to be the husband you always thought you would be, or the wife you always thought you would be, or the parents that you always thought you would be, maybe that failure has been allowed in your life to humble you and to show you your utter need for Christ. Or maybe you're at that place in midlife where you're just not living the radical life that you thought you would live for Jesus when you were younger. I mean, if you had asked 18-year-old you what you would be doing at your age now, you would have said, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to be swinging on a rope over a crocodile-filled river in a jungle somewhere to go and tell those people over there about Jesus. That's what I'm going to give my life to. And now you are diapering kids and scoring a sweet deal on a dresser at a garage sale for your daughter, and, and, and you look at that life and you think, man, I am just not what I thought I would be. I, I, I am not as awesome as I was absolutely sure I would be at this point. But maybe that's been allowed to just expose your need for Christ. Maybe what he's teaching you through that long, boring, dull, middle part of life is that the awesome one in this story is Jesus and it's not you. Maybe he's making you the worshiper that you should be in this time. Or maybe you were that achiever and you have failed. You failed to get the grades, you failed to get the scholarship, you failed to pay the tuition, you failed to pay the bills, you lost your job. All those achievements seem like they vanished. But maybe those failures could be that John the Baptist in rough clothing that came into your life to prepare the way for the Lord, to really work in your heart to heal you up. I had a friend in college, and he was uh, one of the most zealous 
passionate Christians I had ever met. He was the guy who would have prayer meetings at his house at 6 a.m. most days. Uh, We would go and pray there and read the Bible there. He was passionate when he preached. He was passionate when he confronted people in their sin. And then one day, he sinned. And he sinned in a big way, in in the kind of way that was also a crime. And so it was published in the papers. And so here was this guy who was this radical, godly, zealous follower of Christ. And now everybody could read about his sins in the paper. So he lost his ministry position. He lost his good name. The guy who was every church kid's hero now became kind of an outcast. And to this day, he's following Jesus, and he would tell you that the day that his sins were published in the paper was the best day of his life. Because at that point, he couldn't pretend anymore. At that point, his goodness had to come completely from Jesus. At that point, what was always true was exposed, was that he was a wretch, he was a sinner, he had fallen short of God's glory, and his only hope was that Jesus had died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose again. And at that point, grace was able to come into his heart and change him. So again, God doesn't call us to sin. We're not supposed to go and sin more so that grace may abound, the Bible says. But when we do, when we do fall short, it might just be that God is working in that situation to restore us. It might just be that God is using all that failure, all of, all of the ways that we've fallen short of his glory, and he's doing it all so that we would actually know him like we should, so that we would follow him like we should, so that we would be the kind of people that he's called us to be. For me right now in the sermon, I actually failed to read a, a big chunk of the passage, and so um, let's go to verse 16 here. <laughs> um, one of you. Verse 16, <laughs> So it says, Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times. Ouch. He's bringing up the three times that Peter failed, and here he's giving him these three times to say, do you love me? And there's no more boasting. There's no more Peter saying, yeah, Jesus, I love you more than these, because how could he say that? He knows he didn't. He failed more spectacularly than those other disciples did. I mean, Peter was inner circle. He knew more of the teaching of Jesus. He saw Jesus transfigured up on a mountain before his eyes. He, he was the one who talked the really big game, and then he fell. So there's no more saying, I love you more than these. He just says, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, then Peter, feed my sheep. Go out not as the Lord and the master over my people, but as someone who feeds, someone who loves, someone who cares for them. And here's Jesus on the beach, feeding his people. And he says, Peter, you're restored. You're forgiven. It's true that you love me. And now, as evidence that you love me, Go out and give yourself to teaching my people, feeding my people, and giving yourself to my people. And at that point, Peter's restored. So for us, when we've fallen, when we have made a mess of things, made a mess of our relationships, a mess of our lives, a mess of our right standing with the church community, those can all be times when we become the recipients of God's grace like we never have before. Where it becomes more real to us, where, where we can no longer pretend, where there's no longer any kind of phoniness because what, what could we ever claim about our own awesomeness? There's nothing there. 
But in those times, Jesus becomes exceedingly good. So if you're here just recognizing your brokenness today, run to him. Swim to him. Get to him. And I promise that he'll meet you there in your moment of brokenness and humility and give you his grace. God gives grace to the humble. And so if he's humbling you today, that's great news. It's great news that he loves you, he's for you, and he continues to go after you. And he wants to use you in his service, not as JV, but as someone who uses your gifts to serve and bless his people and in his world. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are broken people. But Lord, part of our brokenness is we start to feel self-sufficient. We start to feel okay. We start to have thoughts that we're better than other people. We even work to not feel needy. We work to put on fig leaves and costumes and faces so that we can pretend that we're okay. And honestly, it's, it's an okay without you, and it's not a real okay at all. So Lord, show us our brokenness. Show us our failure. Expose that to us. And then give us grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you came to pursue us. We thank you for your cross. And we pray that everything that you did for us on that cross would be received by us. We pray that we would believe it and that we would believe it again. And Lord, when we fail, keep us from being the people who run away from you in all kinds of ways. Run away from you by trying to fix it all on our own. Run away from you by avoiding you and avoiding your people. But in our humility and in our brokenness, let us run to you And Lord, we know that you're there to meet us. You're there to meet us with your grace. You're there to be kind to us. You're there to recharge us, refresh us, recommission us, and send us out to feed your sheep. Lord, your grace is good and your cross is enough, and we thank you for that. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your mercy in Jesus' name. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, uh, the good news of the gospel is that even though we've fallen, even though we've denied him, even though our sins are huge, even though if people knew us uh, the, the way we even know ourselves, they would say, that guy is, is terrible, that guy's hopeless. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to refresh us, restore us, fix us, heal us, forgive us. He came and he died on the cross so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He came to give us his life so that we might actually have it, so that we might be forgiven so we may be able to to go on and and work and serve him, uh, not because we've been so awesome and we deserve it, but because he deserved it for us. So you can come to that place today where you just believe. You believe you've fallen, but you believe that Jesus is good. You believe he died and was buried and rose again. And if you'll repent, if you'll turn from your sin and your unbelief, and you'll throw yourself completely on Christ and trust completely in him and his cross for his mercy, you'll be forgiven and given everlasting life. That's great news that whoever you are, however far you've gone, you can believe today and be saved and be forgiven. We have a Jesus who saves and saves completely, and that's great news. So because that's great news, let's stand, and with a loud voice, let's sing his praises.